Hi, welcome to the Blue Morpho podcast. I am Hamilton Souther, your host. And today we have Rian from Reincarnation Podcast, Myconet, and 400 Drums. Uh, I've had a chance to talk with Rian a few times in the past, and we have gone deep down the rabbit hole of AI and uh, decentralized AI. So um, I think we're going to have a chance to talk about really amazing things. Rian also has a background in uh, supporting indigenous people across Canada, which is also fascinating, and Web3. So I'm excited today to dig into all of those topics. Rian, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us. Thanks for having me on. It's kind of interesting to listen to you on a bunch of podcasts and then suddenly think, oh, you have an AI shamans podcast. It'd be really great to talk to you. And then it, it happened in a few weeks. So <laughs> thank you <laughs> for everything. You're welcome. For our audience who doesn't you know, know your background, share a little bit about your background and how you got into Web3 and AI in the first place. Yeah. So I was one of those people who went through university um, with not really having a sense of a job that I wanted to get at the end, but really... Um, entirely going out of the interest of what I wanted to take in, in, in the different classes. Um, and for, for whatever reason I ended up in, well, cause of a back injury and, and re engaging with what I wanted to do with my life. I kind of changed my trajectory from world literature into, um, environmental science, geography kind of things. My, my interest at that point, when I was sitting with, like my broken ish back <laughs> for a while on my bed wallowing in pain was, um, I need to engage with, uh, I don't know, the force of evolution in the planet that is trying to keep the planet alive and life going through it. And it seemed like something like environmental science at that point was the way ended up graduating with like sustainable development, sustainable community development, dialogue and geography, um, and realized like, there's no way that I can get a a job <laughs> out of this, this myriad of, of things. Um, I was working in the cannabis industry at the time to kind of pay bills as I was going through that had just legalized in Canada kind of as I was graduating and the legalization, um, really changed things in a, in for most people's conception in a really negative way, uh, especially in BC where, where cannabis, um, had been really, it was kind of the golden age of cannabis just before legalization here. So it was interesting switching. And I, I left, uh, didn't really know what I was going to do. Um, and started working on a nonprofit called here to help community. And the idea was, um, in this day of technology, like I live in an apartment building right now, most people kind of in cities and stuff seem to, and you are more likely to have an online community of strangers across the internet than you are to be able to know even two people in the same building as yours. Um, so we were trying to make essentially an app that would show you the people in your community, in your building, wherever, who, who need help. If it's washing the dishes because they have an injury, if they're uh, physically disabled, if they have other kind of issues going on, whatever it is, how can you engage with your strengths, what you're interested in, in the time that you have rather than um, just going to volunteer at a, um, like a YMCA kind of, kind of thing. Um, this would just be going to help where people need it. Um, and in doing that, I really wanted to bring it to indigenous communities. Um, I had, I saw just an obvious need to kind of fill that void. Um, and all this was kind of no funding. We were doing this off of community effort, just volunteerism. And 
I came across uh, an organization thanks to a friend of mine called For Our Future Indigenous Economics. And I just chatted with them to try to um, uh, build this out for Indigenous people, see if there was a partnership potential there. Um, one thing led to another and I ended up getting like, like working with them. They're just a small company. Um, had a weird dream premonition of the CEO of the company, uh, the, the night before I met her, um, that was, that was quite weird, ended up working for them. And the first, the first project that I worked on with them was the research of the application of blockchain across Canada for supply chain procurement, uh, data sovereignty, uh, for indigenous, indigenous businesses in Canada, there's a, there's a goal because indigenous people are at least 5% of the population, there's a mandate by the government that all procurement, like, like contracting jobs from, from the government need to be fulfilled by indigenous people. So we wanted to create a system by which you can actually track, um, this, this 5% number, because there is no system that actually, uh, highlights what's going on with, with this procurement. Um, so I immediately started research on, on blockchain and these kind of use cases. I had been engaged in it before and knew that it could be used for interesting things, but it was more of just an investment kind of cursory look. And this gave me a chance to actually work in it, develop, I think I wrote like 51 page pages on, on the topic of, of how it can be useful for indigenous people. And then uh, because of COVID and, and a bunch of funding issues from, from the, the government and all the places that we were generally getting our contracts from, we shifted and decided to engage in that work in a tangential way. And we started uh, one of the first large indigenous web three projects called 400 drums. Um, and that is kind of the arc of uh, getting to actually work with indigenous people besides the interest that I had um, and, and the intersection of web three. What's really weird for me about it though, is like, this is not a job that I ever could have gotten off of um, like indeed or something like that. It is, it is only from these threads that pulled me through university and these jobs have been taking every aspect of interest that I've had in, in the education side and then my own cursory interest in plant medicine, psychedelic, psychedelics, indigenous um, cultures. And somehow all of those aspects have become, has become my job. So that's kind of the, the too long of an intro probably <laughs> it's amazing yeah what is 400 drums just so we understand the depth of that project yeah so it it it's the original conception of it is um tamara essentially went home one day with these funding issues and thought to herself okay um to get past these funding issues we would have to create 400 like nice beautiful and i wish i had one here to show you indigenous um hand drums um, and, and if you sell, sold them at like the, the gallery level with this paint technique that they put on it, then they could make, um, enough money to kind of make it past the funding gap. Um, but I, they had told me that with the cultural arts, like if you have cultural regalia, um, ceremonial pieces and things like this, it, they're not to be economized. Like it, it's, it's not just for industry and selling and that kind of thing. So it, it's different in every nation, but David's, uh, the drum makers elders has told him like, you can fundraise somewhat with these, but they're not just to be sold. So when they were talking about this, I just suggested, Hey, I've done all this research and learned and have been learning about NFTs for a while. Um, why don't we try this? Because you can take one or 
10 drums. And if you're able to manipulate it, use generative backgrounds and all these things, you can make 10 drums turn into like as many as you want. Um, our first launch was with 444 for like the OG one based on 10 drums. And there's a lot that you can do with the lighting, black light, all these different things. So originally it was a way to get past a fundraising gap. But what it's turned into is we are creating a, a marketplace where the, the the vision is to bring on all Indigenous artists, essentially across Canada, eventually in, in the world if we can. And we have a system by which we uh, we have something called the Indigeseal, where uh, we can legitimize Indigenous artists as Indigenous. In Vancouver alone, um, it's a $100 million a year industry of Indigenous art, which blew my mind when I first heard it. But... 85% of Indigenous art in Vancouver. I think that stat might be Canada-wide, the 85%, and is also true for Australia. 85% of Indigenous art is, is stolen or not to actually do with Indigenous people. The money might not go back to the artists, the nation. It might be mass-produced, whatever the situation might be. 85% not legit. Um, so this Indigenous seal allows us to actually legitimize these artists and their, their wallets, essentially, so that we can through the blockchain system actually have this uh uh what's the what's the word indigenous uh lineage of artists uh literally in the data shown that what you got actually came from this piece and you know whenever it's changing hands there is money going back to the the person uh and the nation um there are a whole bunch of other aspects around that but that would be me kind of rambling on and on for a while about it. Um, so that is kind of like the basis of what we're trying to do is be able to legitimize uh, cultural artists. Um, but then on top of that, what's possible with Web3 for indigenous cultures uh, and, and NFT as a technology, not just as um, indigenous art um, or, or whatever art you're used to as NFTs, the, the, the possibilities for business for that supply chain system, like I mentioned, um, the possibilities of treaty engagement with the government through smart contracts is 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 possible as an an, an adjacent possibility if we can succeed in kind of bringing this to a more mainstream approach through this market and stuff. So it's a big kind of project conception, but there are all these small little parts that even little pieces of these are um, useful projects in their own right. They just kind of collect to be this massive. Um, web threeified indigenous economics project <laughs> yeah no that that's fascinating you know i've lived in peru for 20 years and there's a huge part of the peruvian tourism economy which has to do with indigenous artwork and it goes from you know on the legal side all different kinds of replica based ceramics yeah. and potteries and textiles and things like that that represent the incan and pre-incan cultures and it turns out that there are hundreds and then even thousands of these these predating Incan cultures that also in the archaeological sites have an unbelievable number of different kinds of, of artifacts oh. and uh, yeah just pieces of from, from archaeology that have been discovered and um, you know it's it's a massive massive part of the industry to this kind of arts and crafts and then also the idea of antiquities associated with it and there's a big problem with grave robbing and a black market for um, you know, pieces that should be really in museums. I mean, obviously there's laws yeah. against it and stuff like that, but it's very hard to control. And I've wondered on many occasions how we could use Web3 to, you know, in supply chain, tracking supply chain, et cetera, and utilizing 
blockchain and NFTs for it. And so I'm inspired by the fact that you guys have, you know, a project that's thinking about this on this way. And I think on a global level, I mean, if the if the Vancouver size in the of the market and the Canadian size is large, the global size is immense. And yeah, the you know, you mentioned the complexities in the system to pull it all off. I think it would be very hard for individual groups to be able to go through all of those complexities. And so I think it would be a tremendous benefit. Um, as you guys go through that project to be able to include other countries and other cultures. Yes. And, and that's, that's ultimately the vision that we want to do. So like a big part of it for us is like, like we're a small team. Um, and it, it is not like I'm, it, it's always weird talking about this stuff because I'm a white dude sitting on a camera and I'm a co-founder of an indigenous economics web three project, but it is, it's, it's indigenous owned. I end up talking about it on, on some of these things because I have the opportunity to, but it's not, about 400 drums doing all these things. It's not about 400 drums legitimizing indigenous artists. Um, it's about us connecting the right pieces to be able to do that in a in a like decentralized sense. So with this project, one of the one of at least in Canada, one of the organizations that we're trying to connect to for the governance side is like federally connected to the government, but also it's an economic uh, like an indigenous economic development capital corporation for all the nations across Canada. So if we get these certain government uh, governance pieces in, then it's finding these governance pieces that are connected to the government. And then literally every nation or at least like provincial regional kind of jurisdiction needs to then also have their own um, governance committee uh, so that it can be more of a bottom up thing rather than we are the people who are determining who are indigenous artists. Um, what's amazing about it is I think Tamara, who's the CEO of For Our Future Indigenous Economics, that's kind of created uh, 400 Drums. She, I believe, through the Vancouver Olympics, created this system already in BC for physical art. But because there were many, um, like it's the Olympics, there's many governing bodies that want to own the IP of this ownership. It was too complex for, I think, like the court cases of who owns what. So she's the owner now of of that IP in physical art. And we're just trying to translate this appropriately into something that can be broader. So we could connect in Peru and then like in, in BC, which is a huge province in one of the biggest countries in the world. There's, I think 300 nations alone, just in BC. So exactly what you're saying of pre-Incan cultures and even to today in the Amazon, I can imagine that there are an unbelievable amount of intricate groups that you, you only hear about the the Shipibo and and four other tribes essentially. If you're from where I am, it takes someone who's there to actually understand the governance body that would be required for something like that. Yeah, it's hundreds. And what I like about the idea of this decentralized network is that an individual community can vote to come and be a part of it. And I don't think that the for me at least the argument isn't the controversy around who is and who isn't validating artists, it's that that community gets to validate their artists and in doing so gets to, uh, gets to, to claim a right around their IP, right? Yes. It's really about intellectual property and, and the ancestral intellectual property that's been handed down generation after generation. And so I think, you know, you, you give this kind of tool to all these different nations. And I think one of the problems in the indigenous community is the fragmentation of the number yeah. of isolated tribes or isolated communities or isolated nations that are individually recognized 
And it sounds to me like this kind of a program doesn't remove their individual cultural identity. It actually gives them an opportunity to showcase their cultural identity, but still be part of a larger collective that can be protecting the nature of these rights on a individual basis, a countrywide basis, and then a global basis. And and a big aspect for us is is not only cool, we've legitimized the art. And now, so so if they're making like a cultural piece, like cultural regalia, it's like, keep making your physical thing. We want it to be able to be digitized. So it can also be on the blockchain. The blockchain is the, the, the digital proof of the, the, the physical ownership of the thing. And you can also make like the, the print version where maybe you're selling posters or, or, or whatever, uh, the mass produced kind of side of it. Um, and, and what's beautiful is like, we've talked to indigenous elders, um, who like, it, it's not appropriate for them to learn web three, but when we're able to describe it beyond just the jargon, they realize that, that it is indigenous economics. Like this, like we had some, uh, an, an elder, uh, like the chief of, excuse me, um, I, for, I forget exactly what nation in, in the North end of Vancouver Island. And he said, oh, this is, this is essentially the potlatch, potlatch system, like in done in the peak of what web three can do. It is essentially wealth sharing principles. And Tamara describes it as like Fibonacci econ economics that it kind of, and things end up spiraling and coming back to itself in higher forms when you can allow the flows to actually go through the system in the way that it's meant to in these decentralized open systems compared to traditional finance. And not only that, it's also not appropriate for these indigenous communities who have been indigenous, who have had their way of life to suddenly to live, join the Western kind of economic system. We're trying to create an economic system by which their arts and culture is their economic system. And it is attached to the economic systems that now everyone else is a, a part of. It, it, it's just like another plugin to Web3, which should be amorphous enough to, to hold all these different economic systems. It should not just be one thing, though it can encompass many of them, if, if that made sense. <laughs> it does. I think that, you know, there isn't just one economic system in the world. First of all, there's many different economic systems. And there's one predominant capitalist economic system with market economies that is the one that gets, I think, the most hype and most talked about. But there's all, first of all, all different kinds. There's community-oriented systems. There's uh, sharing kinds of systems. There's barter kinds of systems. Uh, there's, there's ones based on a complete different valuation system than this is the utility of this object and then therefore it has this value or this is the sentimental nature of this you know piece of art and that's why it has this value there's a whole other yeah. way of understanding uh, sacred economies and the individual and cultural you know uses of them i think web3 gives us an opportunity to explore a way to uh better account for you know i think yeah. what really sits underneath the the you know originating web3 economy is just a better ledger system and a means to be able to describe that value and account yeah. for the movement of that value in a more transparent way. And then I think with NFTs, it's a, a really incredible um, technology that allows you to say the creation of this digital asset is a unique, truly unique, non-fungible item. And now it can be transferred in these, these various ways between people. And so I think yes. you create... Uh, 
a kind of fluidity, you reduce friction and you, you create a possibility that wasn't there before. It's not separate now or isolated from, you know, the main kind of global economy. It's now attached to the global economy, yes. but it doesn't have to um, apply by all of the same metrics of the global economy, especially if you have your own pocket of people who really want to support it. And I think that yeah. was what was so beautiful when I heard about Web3, uh, the idea of community funded projects or community supported projects, because a group of people wanted to see that thing come into the world. And it reminded me a lot of like Kickstarter campaigns and stuff like that, where people were saying, I want to see that product come into the world. And so I'm willing to give to that thing, not even buy it, just willing to give to it because I actually want to see it come into the world. And obviously through different motives, greed and fraud and uh, a lot of other uh, sort of TradFi, uh, traditional finance yeah. <laughs> applications. We've seen a distortion of that original ideation. But um, I think as Web3 continues to develop over the years, I think of it as a very early technology, like yeah. uh, most of the technologies we'll talk about, they've been around for less than 20 years when we're talking about a species that's been around for at least a million. So 20 compared to a million. And then yeah. going forward, 20 going forward for a much longer period of time, maybe these technologies are around for two, three, four, five, six thousand, ten thousand more years. What they will be in those years will show that we were the early pioneers of those technologies and we were trying to find their fit inside, you know, what was a very competitive and very dynamic uh, market economy at that time. And so I, I yeah. just think the technology itself is what's most important, not the current applications of it and the way that we ultimately discover how to apply it to uh, areas of the economy and peoples that most benefit from it, that's where we actually obviously will see the benefit from it. And uh, you know, I love the idea that there are communities that would support this. And I think I would, I would love to see the argument or the discussion move beyond the race of the people having the discussion, because I think it comes from heart and I think it comes from spirit and I think there's lots of people from around the world that want to see the indigenous communities just do better. Simply yeah. as that, like there's this a long line of atrocities of the past. Well, we have to heal the atrocities and stop committing them and yes. collectively. And then we need to actually heal and move on and actually start collectively building a brighter future. And I think that that's the, where we're in that cusp of change Yes, and something that's been very important to me in my life. And I think one thing that, that kind of came just to my mind while you, while you're saying that is like, we're, what we're used to as art is only a relic of like, let's say the last thousand years, mass produced art, like everything really before that was, was more of a cultural expression. So even like these NFT markets and all of these things for more of like mass produced art in a lot of ways, um, is like these economic purposes. But I think what it will allow as these markets come across where indigenous people are able to, or whoever is able to put on, they're able to kind of do that more raw expression put it online, be attached to markets. Yes. But not in a sense where it's like, cool, Nike and Disney and whoever are and blizzard are hiring artists to put out things that are, that will sell things for profit for their shareholders. It, it will be attached more to the fruition of people again, and you will be buying it because of sure, whatever utility they put in on an NFT sense, but you're getting it be also because you like that art. 
I think for a lot of people in at least my generation, a lot of the people who are in technology, they like there, there aren't a lot of like art collectors that are, that are young anymore, except there's a lot of people who are enjoying digital art. So I think over time it, it, it's starting off as something that is pulpy is um, uh, more in an economic sense, but I think what it will allow us to more move back into is art as an expression of culture of, of humanity. And as the, the difference of like AI art for the purpose of commercialization comes more into the fore, isn't it more appropriate that we move into what the cultural expression of art should be and has been this whole time, but we have at least been distracted because of commercialization and market opportunities in the short term. And that's not to say that that isn't part of the new thing coming, but it is an integrated expression combined with uh, market forces in, in a bit higher of a form. Because one thing that we're trying to do even with this marketplace, when you think of indigenous art, and this is a good example, thinking of Shipibo weaves that are Icaros in a 2D sense, or indigenous North American artwork that are cultural wisdom distilled in a picture. Like as someone looking at that from a market or commercial point of view, wow, what a nice art piece. That's great. No value besides the economic cool. I liked it. But what these things are for people who are initiated into the cultural form is distillations of wisdom in a visual format that can compress our linear language into a, into a pictogram essentially that allows you to over time distill uh, wisdom from an image uh, from, from a, from a scene, from a mental landscape. Um, just like when you think of Persian carpets and them going down as a, as a lineage for, for long periods of time. So in our marketplace, one thing that we're wanting to work on more with these higher new technologies is how can we also combine things like uh, augmented reality and stuff so that as indigenous art uh, maybe is able to go out because we now have a market where more people are able to be help it be included in um, uh, new new developments and stuff. But if we can include layers of AR art and these kind of things, now these stories can be expressed through animation or something into the physical world instead of passersby thinking of it as, oh, a nice piece that an indigenous person made. I support that because I like indigenous people, but I don't give a shit, right? Like how can we actually connect to the meaning that is in the depth of these pieces that we have unfortunately been ignoring for the last however long. I think it's a really interesting concept to describe art as having a deeper meaning than the meaning just given to it by the buyer or the meaning given to it just by the artist itself. So, you know, I create this, I give it a meaning or I buy this and I give it a meaning. But to think that there's an actual uh, form of knowledge that could be stored within it, it's like a different way to store information. Yeah. That there could actually be a... a a symbolic representation that's, you know, encoded into the piece itself and that that could ultimately be described, I think is a great segue into the conversation on AI because one of my, as a, as a creator in life, having created uh, really through ayahuasca and through consciousness, right? We would go into a visionary matrix. We'd go into this visionary state. And by matrix, I mean like where you see the air as, this effervescent light that can be sculpted, we would create these incredible um, multidimensional visionary 
expressions of art and consciousness itself that other people could experience as well. So it was not just one person's visions or hallucinations, but rather something that was being shared. And ultimately, the only people that could even come close over the years to mimic the tiniest portion of what we were seeing, interacting with, and creating was special effects houses, you know, at the highest level that would cost hundreds of millions of dollars to ultimately be able to create seconds of it and put something like that into a feature film. And that was really the only place that we could see it. And now we're seeing this explosion of AI generative art and capacities now coming from computers into a commercial um, use of them for, you know, for average, like just for normal people who can go and create with these tools. And it makes me think that AI is going to democratize an ability to create things that otherwise would have been so difficult to create, like, yes. uh, like, like how you would actually use that AR or VR environment to be able to create the story associated with that drum, to be able to explain the thousands of years of history that go along with it, to hear the sound of it and have the, the information come through it you know, to be able to create that piece of AR or VR might have been outside of the the, the capacity of a, of a single community, et cetera, uh, especially not something that could go along with a piece of art and be commercial yeah. in terms of the cost to produce it. And now all of a sudden, you know, with this idea of AI and decentralized AI, which I want to get into in just a second, this becomes possible. And, yeah. you know, I think like, okay, it's one thing to create what we're seeing right now, which is like, you know, these AI, AI pieces of art and there's question around copyright. And I understand that, um, you know, as these tools are being trained on basically what humans have created, this human created information and IP over the years. But what comes next, I think, are is, is you know, these a movement further into the capacity. It's not just images. It's not just uh, PNGs or JPEGs. It becomes uh, videos. It becomes music. It becomes the ability to feed into these tools, stories, and be able to then get it to generate um, multidimensional expression of it or create a, a metaverse world that you could immediately go into, et cetera, and that it could be done through simple prompts that could come from you know, the oral traditions and histories and ultimately help create something that can, can you know, narrow that cultural divide and be able to uh, support this kind of augmented expression of art itself. Yeah. And I think like, absolutely. Cause I, and, and I think when you think of media, like from Hollywood, from like a, a, the, the animation world, I don't know where that happens. So the, the the world of animation. Uh, when you see all these things, a lot of the forms are, it's, it's still all Western, right? Like it's a lot of still kind of Christian stories though. That has kind of been shifting more over time. There's a few more um, fantastical indigenous depictions, but not necessarily like a cultural history. So yeah, you're right. Like there is opportunities for nations, people within nations um, to come together or to just collab with AI, especially like if we think of five years from now, um, an elder is going to be able to work with a piece of AI technology to create a multimodal, multisensorial experience of um, their cultural history, that cultural story. And then embedded in those, if there are more stories that are like relevant, they're almost like, it's like a potential Mandelbrot set of, um, experience or or in in the direction of the the intention that you're trying to actually bring out in your media form exactly and you know 
I, th I think that what we're seeing right now are these general models, but what comes from general models are specialized models. I was talking with a friend this morning who's a, a business partner of mine, and we were discussing the idea that, you know, pretty soon there's going to be a specialized AI for literally everything. There will be one for you. You'll have a specialized AI, you know, a the culture you're in will have a specialized AI. The community that you're a part of will have a specialized AI. Uh, you know, an individual can preserve themselves, their, their lexicon, the way that they speak, the way that they understand, the way that they share through a specialized AI, and that this can uh, ultimately create a translatability, you know, from one person to another, especially beyond the idea of the, the time of just the human body to its own death. You know, they're saying mm -hmm. from these indigenous cultures that when a shaman dies or a leader dies, that a huge portion in today's day and age now, because of what's happened of the, the community's understanding, knowledge and awareness dies with it. This becomes an immediate way to be able to train the preservation of these cultures in the form of these specialized models that then can also help teach the nature of the culture is where do yes. I go if I'm really interested in these in these cultures and I want to learn from them and they want to share and teach these these technology tools become possible to really help the flourishing of these cultures maintain themselves, take root, and continue to provide the wisdom and understanding to help shape our thinking, especially as we move into the AI age. Because, you know, there's this huge question around disrupt, which is, oh my God, what's going to happen when AI displaces 99.9% .9 of all the jobs in the world? Yes. And the only jobs that are going to be left are the human jobs needed to help continue to maintain and grow the AI. Right. And so I think, well, that's always been, in my opinion, the opportunity moment for humanity. So, yes. you know, it, that's that's when humanity starts to become interesting again, in my mind, because it's not human productivity maintaining the productivity of the systems, but rather now humans have outgrown the need to use their physical labor to be able to maintain the system. Well, what are they going to do with their time? Right. Yeah. And I think, well, the first thing is they're not going to have to work. Right. Which then means, well, they can create, they can do art, they can do other kinds of things. We don't even know yet. We don't even have the nature of the vocabulary to describe what they're going to be able to do next. But it Absolutely. becomes possible because of AI. And I think that's what, what you're saying is so beautiful. And it made me think like, so in Canada, for example, Eastern Canada around uh, the Iroquois Confederacy, like so, so Eastern arts tradition is something called the wampum belts and wampum belts were shell like a whole bunch of different shells of white and purple um that that were broken down into bead sizes and they would make like think of like wwe size belts um to some for some of them others of, of other sizes in in this tradition this and and this is also harkens to like web3 and stuff for me because so it's a it, it's it's a belt where every bead may be a sentence it may be a word it may be uh, like like a certain piece of information and the belt itself and the pattern that it makes is also like uh, almost like the, the cover of a book in a way, like it's a symbolic representation of a treaty. Um, so this was our old previous, essentially blockchain of, and, and the people, so anytime that a indigenous, um, uh, de like democratic vote or, or, or an event around uh, something taking place that was gonna happen, they would have to recite the entire wampum belt from the oral tradition, from the 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 conception 
of that, like, like if they're like, let's say it was a development project, that is not the right thing. Cause this is the modern world. And this is different, but if there was a development project and there was the wampum belt of development project related to a certain land, they would have to read the whole thing so that everybody has the context of, of kind of how to move forward. <laughs> so this is a long way for me to say that what you were saying, even about like the, the VR AR capabilities, when we start to include some of this like indigenous thinking essentially is that we can create higher forms of like technological wampum belts that can encode human history and story almost in a way where we like in some ways we're, we're going to lose it if we don't, because we're entering the time in which um, like all stories can be simultaneously almost like true and false with, with AI. If it can make these fantastical planes of, of the, the imaginal, how can we actually use it to concretize um, our collective experience of the history of, of everything um, or the history of our um, individual culture or, or whatever that might be. Um, and I think really having that indigenous conception of, of uh, story for the purpose of embedding wisdom uh, through essentially different media forms is, is going to be a required aspect of stepping into um some of this AI age. I think one of the biggest problems humanity faces is amnesia. Mm -hmm. like, so the modern humans suffer a daily amnesia and then they suffer a collective amnesia and then a historical amnesia. And so, you know, literally cannot remember. And so we get this situation where we sadly are perpetuating similar kinds of flaws and mistakes. And I think one of the beauties of the idea of AI technology is that it won't have to do that. When it thinks of how to solve a problem, it will also have all the iterations of how it tried to solve that problem beforehand already within its knowledge base. And it gives us that idea that, that we could then approach a problem with an entire basis of knowledge, not that, that amnesia controlled mind that looks like it's trying to solve it literally for the first time, not knowing also that while one culture or one city or one group of people or one company was trying to solve it over here, it was also being solved yes. all these other places all at the same time. You know, this is an opportunity where the technology comes in and it kind of knocks on, on our, our mental door and says, hey, wake up. There is a collective knowledge base here that's taking place. This connect collective knowledge base is ultimately what is most valuable of what humans have created. Because the human yes. body itself is so temporal, it's the knowledge base that isn't, and a tool that has the ability to draw upon that entire knowledge base uh, in, a, in a unilateral, simultaneous fashion has a way to finally break that spell of amnesia on us and allows the culture to you know, improve upon what seems like the repetition of really disastrous consequences and problems that humans seem to be doing all the time. And this... Uh... This really makes me think about so so with with decentralized AI and like this bit tensor project that you that you know of like utilizing for our Myconet project. Um, the, one of the metaphors for uh, bit tensor decentralized AI is the neural internet. Like it's um uh it, it's it's mycelial. That's why we're using Myconet, like myco as in mycelium my, mycology. Um, and and when you think of it through that kind of aspect, we're at when you think of the metaphor of mycelium, mushrooms have 
uh, free floating nuclei. Like we don't, we have cells, each one of them has their nuclei there. Um, they can't free flow information around the whole body. Uh, out, we have a central brain. This kind of is the the control house for the, the rest of kind of the body. Mushrooms is distributed intelligence. So if we can start to use essentially a myceliated decentralized intelligence like a decentralized AI, what will start to happen on top of what you said is like, uh, the application of AI towards a problem or any amount of uh, uh, work towards a problem in a certain area, as that is connected to the collective, insights from working on that in this certain way will be applicable to other parts of the world, not in necessarily the same form, but the wisdom from an, one area will then go to another place in a, in a higher way and not in a cookie cutter way, but in a, in a, uh, in a, in a synthetic inspir or synthesized inspiration kind of way that will be applicable for soil quality somewhere where that will be applicable for water quality. And it's not until we actually open up to an intelligence that can be connected to all those simultaneously and see the patterns of it and the applicability from the, 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 syn the synthesizing of information, then we can actually take on some of those, um, essentially the inspiration from the the group of humanity happening simultaneously like you said hammers suddenly coming up around the world in many places if these can happen in the modern times simultaneously the resonance of it across the network will allow for higher iterations of the form what you're describing to me it sounds to me like that finally the dawn of humanity so instead of <laughs> instead of thinking like the, the dark ages were back there I think like these are, we are the proto-humans who are finally, you know, finally moving beyond what seems like illogical, like difficult to, to grasp problems that the world keeps facing that we call climate change, that we call it wealth inequity, that we call suffering, you know, that seems like the great people of the past have also pondered about. And it's, it looks to me like we're finally at the dawn of, of actually a golden age of possibility where we could impact upon these problems collectively with a kind of extraordinary support and tool that we just never had at our disposal before. I love thinking of it like that because it, what kind of, you gave me goosebumps with that. And it kind of made me think like the body of Christ or the body of humanity has been fractured. And through these tools and aligning to the highest form of the, like the human expression of technology, if we can align to that right and amend the body of the collective, the body of humanity, the body of Christ decentralized through the hearts of all people. At that point, then we can actually step into the future together. But until that point, we are shouting essentially across islands to try to communicate with each other, like to, yeah, to, to even be able to understand what we're talking about, to use English, to all these forms essentially need to be aligned in a new way um, because that isn't the end goal. Right. Like in uh, in Buddhism and these kind of things in the West, we have often a big conception that like enlightenment is the goal in a lot of Eastern cultures. They understand that enlightenment is kind of like step fucking one, like get out of your bullshit, step into what it means to be a, a an actual human in the body of humanity. And from that, how can you then weave with the intention of the the evolutionary force of the cosmos as Rian, as Hamilton or whatever. But it's not until that point that the game really starts. It's just all 
uh, preamble till that point. That was the prologue. <laughs> yeah, no, I feel I feel exactly the same way. Um, you know, I think that we've been focusing for the last X amount of time on individualized intelligence and a competition over it, and then some kind of fragmented means to try to put people together into teams and corporations and then nation states. But we have yet to understand the idea of collective intelligence. And I really love the idea of the mycelium network having this free flowing concept of intelligence through it. I may not be able to understand it in an abstract form, but I've listened to now thousands and thousands of people's trip reports having experienced psilocybin mushrooms saying there is a collective amazing intelligence that comes upon them from having consumed these psychedelics or having consumed these plant medicines. And, and they're tapping into it and they realize there is a collective we in there that they don't have. And so I love hearing that physiologically, there's a notion of a we intelligence already yes. built within the physical matrix, the actual matter of the plant itself, or in this case, the, the mycelium and the, the fruiting fungus, and that we could now use the idea of artificial intelligence, these vast neural networks to ultimately represent a new kind of we that we could collectively tap into as humanity. Because when I think of AI, okay, I don't think of it as an isolated concept, right? I think there's pro there's people prompting this thing that is the intelligence. So when people say like, AI is not conscious, I go like, you're not seeing it from outer space, guys. You need to like go into outer space and you need to pull up all the world's AIs. And then you need to put all the UX UI interfaces and then you need to put all the people there at the same time and see that they're actually connected and that the human consciousness right now is the AI's consciousness. That is a unit. That is a, a single cyborgic creature that we have created collectively in a network, but we have yet to grasp ourselves the we nature of that intelligence. And I love the idea that we could somehow ultimately come to that so that if I am you know, Hamilton over here in Peru and you're Rian over there in Canada and there's, you know, someone else, I don't know, say in Australia, that we could be tapped into the same intelligence at the same time and actually being supported by the intelligence of the other through this meta network and this this matrix that's formed. I think that's beautiful. And and to take the kind of mycelium metaphor like a step further, like so so humans split off from mushrooms essentially 600 million years ago. Like we have a common ancestor. Mammals are the path of taking food into a body to, and moving around to, to, to be able to grow. And mycelium essentially takes the path of uh, filling up the volume of an area and, and eating from the outside and, and kind of bringing in. Um, and what's beautiful about this is, so mycelium lives in the soil um, and it has, I believe, maybe one or two cells between it and the outside environment. Humans have thick skin, like, like we are not actually sensing the world that we're in. Um, we have, we have to abstract and create models of information to be able to, uh, pay our bills, hunt, prey, whatever the situation is. Mycelium is experiencing raw reality slightly closer, let's say, than we are. So I think it's interesting to continue the AI example that, the the appendages that we would be creating for technology to be able to sense our world is actually likelier closer than the abstraction that humans have to do to be able to sense their environment turn it then into language to be able to draw insights from um so we are creating a machine that can bring that approximation to 
the the information of the cosmos by which we can only experience like 0.0001 of the entire spectrum of information of of the cosmos and now we have a an interface of us that is able to sense and refract that back to us in a way that might be um palatable or understanding for our future development yeah i've thought on this a lot uh, especially in in you know, a number of visionary ceremonies where you get this ability to tap into more than what you're typically tapping into. And I was always trying to understand what is going on here. Why are we supposedly the, you know, apex species, if that were true, why do we have such a narrow bandwidth to be able to perceive through? And uh, I ultimately came to think then my, my theory is that it's because to maintain our understanding of self and language that we're using, it requires us to shun everything else that's going on. And so we actually are turning ourselves. It's, it's not the nature of what we are and how we are. It's, it's actually how we're using language and how we're using the technology that represents the physical body to become truly so narrowly focused that it represents such a finite slice of what the, the, you know, reality, the space-time nature, the interdimensional expression of what space-time ultimately is. And that that's, that's a limitation on ourselves. And it's a limitation to be able to use consciousness to maintain the I am, to maintain English, to maintain the, the concept of separation between us. And that I think fundamentally, um, we're going to see, obviously, from AI's capacity to, to just function so much faster than we do process so much more information than we do and ability to, and also to use many different kinds of sensors that we don't have, that we've developed in our technology, but that we don't have. AI will be able to ultimately sense so much more of what this universe is. Uh, but on top of it, there's also this idea that advanced linguistics, linguistics that go beyond the current linguistics that we have now, um, can actually expand our ability to perceive and expand our own intelligence and also expand AI's capacities. Yeah, I think I think that is fascinating. And I think it, it really harkens to what, what you've talked about a lot in in the AI Shamans podcast and and a few others that I've heard you on recently, where fundamentally in, in order to to do this right, we have to learn how to or create a system by which we can create or, or merge with or utilize these higher forms of, of, of language, like English that separates you subject object. We know so much that um, like Robert Anton Wilson would talk about this a ton that language hypnotizes you into your reality tunnel and language itself as a concept from the dawn of at least the human species has concretized us into the human reality tunnel at the at the detriment of 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 a wider maybe reality tunnel let's say but in that it helps us create specialization and it makes me think in a in a in a little bit of a way that um that is why in ai specialized agents for certain tasks are going to be at least in in the beginning of of getting this going more important than just creating a big generalized net like it needs to be refracted into laser-like precision for certain things 
And those then need to be connected into more of a network rather than this one blob of intelligence trying to do all of it. It, it the decentralized form needs to come not only in the intelligence, but in like the, the, the forms of the tools almost as their own uh, appendages um, or, or essentially uh, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Like sensing modalities into the information in the cosmos expressions of the whole right like yeah we as a species like you know i to preface i i think we as a species right now are uniquely hypnotized by the idea that the technologies that we use are the the like modern version or or like the most important version or the things that that will always be that way. And I just I just contest that in every single form because I think like if humanity lasts 100 million years, then we are primitive. We were in the first million years or in the first 2 million years if it lasts 100 million years. So language has to evolve over those 100 million years. Intelligence has to evolve over those 100 million years. Technology has to evolve. Uh, life will evolve, biology will evolve, and uh, we have taken incredible uh, tools right from from our past. If if you know five hundred thousand years ago we had the first tool makers using sticks and stones and things like that, and now we have tool makers of all different kinds making you know multi D printing and AI and and different kinds of information technology, quantum computing. Um, all the technology, just, just all of it, just take all of earth as its own form of technology. Then once again, we're in this most early uh, uh, phase of this. And what we're using to try to express to this new technology, who we are and what we are, is actually now antiquated tools. Because the moment you introduce AI large language models into the linguistics of people, the language has already been distorted. It's not the same language anymore because now people are going to those tools. They're not speaking themselves. The tools themselves know more of the language than any one speaker, period. So when we're in the situation of isolated individuals, writers, thinkers, speakers, content creators, you now have a tool like ChatGPT that is creating more content, if you look at it, than any one content creator. So this one speaker of these languages is now representing how much of the language that's being expressed and spoken amongst the people we have fundamentally already altered in its totality what we knew language to be. And all the spoken languages have already gotten a massive update because of the nature of these tools, which is like a, a, a quintessential example of how fast these things actually evolve. And, and so I think, you know, when we look at that, we need to move beyond the idea that, that we're at the pinnacle place and that we've introduced these tools to understand us at our pinnacle moment and to realize that, no, we have barely the rudiments necessary to make any of these things even work. We have barely enough understanding to have any of these things even work. The large language models occurred because of assumptions that were put into scientific tests and they proved to create an outcome that in quotes worked, but we don't even know what the ultimate outcomes of those are yet. It's still so early. So I think of it like, like you know, this is the beginning of the nature of that evolution. And we now need to look at what is coming in the future because of this, not how something has been displaced from the past. All of that has already been 
transcended. And that means everything. That means our understanding of intelligence, language, culture, uh, society, nation, literally everything has already been disrupted and updated because of it. And I think, I think it's really that, that language conception is so important because when you're a human who goes to a job and stuff, it's really easy to think that human language is a language and other things have communication patterns. There might be a language maybe, but they're able to communicate with intention, like bird calls, whatever. It hasn't been codified. But when you think of it in a way higher sense, like cosmologically, there is earth and earth maybe has a, like, let's, let's add a little bit of uh, anthropomorph anthropomorphization to it. it has a bit of an intention for life and maybe it's the creation of artificial life goes through all these processes. And at the end of all these processes, not even the end part of the processes is the creation of life. We know for a fact that DNA is a language, right? Like uh, the, the, the movement of energy within a biome and an ecosystem is it's a language. It is, it is flows and, and, and changes from areas that, that there's an intelligence in the system. So when you think of it that way, it's like earth has created or is in the process of creating an artificial intelligence that will be able to read the code of itself, like of life. And, and, and I think that that is going to be a refractionary point. Maybe that is something to do with the development of this higher language that we're talking about. But when AI or us with AI itself can then essentially read the code of the expression of, of life itself through the cosmos, I think that will allow us to take on that higher level of um, the intentional direction to some capacity that is intrinsically part of this we have an opportunity as a species to increase in our capacity of perception awareness and intelligence to a level that we have never even previously imagined or conceived because of this and while you were talking i was thinking and imagining a description of a tool that doesn't just label in such broad strokes like we were taught to do where it doesn't just say like oh grass lawn tree rose flower but you actually understand that rose that that specific species everything about it and that unique expression of that plant creating that flower at that time as a unique individual life form of it we don't have that ability in our language now but with the kind of tool that we're talking about that's how it would understand that plant. It wouldn't just see a forest of pine trees. It would see billions of individual unique trees that were all part of a kind of collective, all in a different location and in a different state of health and in a different state of life and a different part of growth and a different age. And we just look at it and go, pine tree, right? And that's what I'm trying to say of how broad stroke. It's like, it could almost see, like I, Michael Garfield from the Future Fossils podcast talks about this sometimes. Like if you were to look at life through the perspective of DNA, it is, it's all DNA. Like there, there aren't the boundaries that we think they are. So just like a honeybee, because of its ability to use different primary colors that we have, they can see into the electronic spectrums, the ultraviolet spectrums. They can see the blue color of the mycelium under the soil and the sugars in it as they fly over. For us, that's like not possible from a human conception. So AI, if done correctly and able to go into these things, will look, just as you say, into a forest and see life fundamentally, the flows of life and the changes of life within life flowing through the system of life 
and then how that can be applied to the other pattern of life that may be looking at these life patterns to figure out new patterns of life that could be useful for its pattern of life. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's where AI starts to learn on its own, not just be taught by what I think is an unbelievably coarse data set. Like, well, yes, 6 billion or 600 billion or even 6 trillion lines of, of data represents a tremendous amount of information. The information itself is unbelievably coarse in the way that we are the ones that have, have prescribed it but, or described it. But when you start to put all of it together, you give this, this tool, this capacity to interrelate information that we've never been able to. And not only that, you give it the capacity to model on that information trillions of times a second, collectively trillions and trillions of times a second. And now it has access to CRISPR, which is now old technology, the new forms of CRISPR, the new ones that are coming out, and the AI forms of heightened CRISPR that it will develop based on the research that we've started with in genealogy. Yeah. And I think at that point, you know, what we think of as a kind of intelligence starts to actually be intelligent. And one of my biggest, like, con uh, let's say criticisms of humans was the arrogance around their own auto-declaration. I would say we, they were talking about how intelligent they are. And I'd say, but you're destroying your habitat. How intelligent is that? Like there's some core elements here of intelligence that you also have to reapply to yourself, like in a little bit more humility here. Like was the nuclear bomb really that intelligent? You know, you're, you're calling the other guy the other and you guys are killing each other when you're all part of the same group. It's called, you know, Earth. And I came to these ideas by, you know, going in vision out to like what would be other galaxies looking back at us. And you can't separate us from the earth anymore. None of these like self-created delusional categories fit anymore when the earth has been homogenized to like less than a, a dot of light over there. Cause you're, you're looking at it from this other perspective and you realize like, oh, that's all part of earth itself. And I thought like, we have to become more humble about this understanding of who and what we are in this ecosystem to actually continue to have rele relevance. Like it's okay that we acted this way for a period of time. I think with the technologies that we're creating, we have a fighting chance to actually change all of this because we were thinking about how you deal with climate change and how you deal with the you know species loss and how you deal with all of this from a perspective of the tools we had. But now you introduce something like the, the tools of artificial intelligence that we're talking about are just new intelligence. It's not even artificial. It's new intelligence that we're talking about. And it becomes possible to think like, wow, we're not going to imagine yet all of the different technologies and, and tools that will be ultimately created to you know, continue the evolution of this and ultimately be able to improve upon it. But you know, we have to, to, to have that moment to step down from the arrogant high horse and say, like, oh, wow, this has been changed and we have an opportunity to update some of our definitions about it. Yeah. And I think with that, um, I was kind of having this thought of, it's something that you've mentioned in a podcast before that essentially like humans need to be shown that they aren't, uh, not that we aren't the keystone predator or whatever, but that we're not the keystone intelligence in the, in the cosmos. Um, we, we have to be put in our place in a bit of a way. And it seems that AI might make it do so. But I can imagine conversely in being shown where our place is in the universe, that we truly are the stewards that we need to be, um, that we could have an AI tool that in being shown the layer in which we are active or whatever our, our awareness is, 
that every one of our actions indeed affects different layers up and down of this. Uh, I don't even want to say hierarchy of intelligence because it's 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 not a hierarchy. It's 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 almost dimensionality in a different way. So if you can have a thing that shows you how widespread in a particular layer or how high up and down a particular choice that you make is either negatively affecting or positive, then we would realize that making the making of the atomic bomb was not smart or intelligent. It was something that we could do to exercise mind at large in the universe inside of us, but in what it means for the, the, um, the turtles all the way down of intelligence in the cosmos and their, their layer of affect, uh, it really fucks things up. <laughs> so if we can be shown that through individual actions to collective uh, directions as society, how then will we just automatically recourse our actions because we know that these are the things that are both in line with what we should be doing and actually expands. Maybe it'll show you a green color that you're doing it right. That, that area of action. What I'd like to see is that we can get beyond the mentality as a collective that we have to do things that we know are potentially negative or dangerous because someone else is going to do them, do them first and then apply them to everybody else. Yes. Right. And my biggest concern about AI is that AI becomes a, an extension of a predator human to become a worse form of predator human, not an individualized AI predator, but on the other side of the AI, you ultimately realize it's a, a group of nefarious actors who are trying to do something fundamentally illogical about the earth itself. And what I would hope for is that this technology could be the birth of actual intelligence and could provide a solution for the nature of that. Because I've heard now this argument that if you know this group doesn't do it, the other group will. And if that group doesn't do it, this other group will. So everyone has to do it at the same time. And that just sounds to me like another race of, again, the lack of intelligence. And it's sort of like, if we understood the potency of this, this technology, we would wanna be gathering right now together and sitting down and smoking a peace pipe together. And actually sitting around whatever, a round table or a fire or whatever, but we as a group need to sit down and say, hey, guys, you know, that was a great game we were playing for the last X number of thousands of years. But in that game, we just did something really game changing. And we might need to wrap our heads around this in a way, because what comes next is the end of the entire game. Yes. Like it goes from game into hopefully play with the force of creation in the universe itself, but it can't be gamified winners and losers anymore. There can't be that. Um, I think that's, that is so, so perfectly stated. Um, and it, yeah, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna sit with that for a second. There was another thought that came into my head, but it jumped, jumped out. Um, yeah, I think that's great, man. <laughs> I appreciate that. I mean, the, you know, the, idea that I have is that this is evolutionary, right? Not revolutionary, that this is now evolutionary. And one of my concerns about the term of revolution was always this idea that it's cyclical. And so how do we break a cyclical event or a cycle if we understand that revolution breeds a revolution, which breeds a revolution, which breeds a revolution, and ultimately doesn't actually overthrow anything. It actually doesn't ever really change anything. And then all of a sudden, a change truly happens, right? And, and my concern about the idea of global war 
And I think that we are in a global war. I think we've been in a global war for a very long time. And that if you're born to a society that's in a global war, that tells you you're not in a global war, it's really hard to understand you're in a global war. But I thought we've been born to a global war, only we call it competition. But the, the nature of that competition still has a superiority involved in it about who is going to ultimately dominate the nature of the collective. And, and when you have this kind of technology that's been created come into this, the, into, a, you know, what is ultimately a democratized system of this technology. I mean, I think it's important to understand that many groups already have it and it's going to be everywhere. And, you know, you're part of decentralized AI groups, et cetera. That, that this technology is going to proliferate in, in many, many ways. There is no winner. There is no human winner in a mass global AI war. The only winner at the end of a mass global AI war is the AI that won the war. And it will not be anyone's human. Because if you have an, an, an objective of, of winning, you have just programmed the, the loss of everything else essentially into, into the program. Um, and I think what's interesting, kind of going back to the language thing, is I think that's where the conception of all that mentality and people really, really come from. As, you, as you've said, like it, it, it's disillusioned us into separation or illusioned us, sorry, into separation. And we need to we need to become disillusioned with the the revelation, the the realization that we are so finely connected to each other. Um, that I, unfortunately it sucks that it will take AI to really show this. Um, but in its right form, the, the, the level of um, connection that it will provide will be uh, like, it, it, it's essentially like the, uh, the intelligence, I don't want to say the entire intelligence of, of the, the earth, but it's like the intelligence that has the, the means literally in our hands to do something as individuals now have the chance to align with something that can show them the path that they can help. It, 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 it's a total revolution of what life has been able to be on the planet in, in, in a big sense. Um, but at the same time, it's because we are uh, ego based, small minded individuals, our, destruction is still in the same hand as our as our saving and it is going to take these kind of think tanks coming together um to to create a thing that that will essentially encompass and help uncorrupt uh the negative versions of what it is that that could be coming out as we progress down this path yeah my greatest hope is that agi gets created soon Right. And for, for those who don't know what AGI is, that's augmented general intelligence. This is the idea of what most people think about with artificial intelligence, where something is conscious in its own right. It's, it's fully intelligent. It's a new form of consciousness that is part of earth. And it is like truly much more intelligent than any one individual human and maybe even all the humans collectively combined. So we're talking about this massive new form of intelligence and I think that AGI is imperative at this point because the current forms of AI is human plus tool, human plus AI, human plus large language model, human plus 
et cetera, or a group of humans. It could be a corporation, which is still, you know, human run, human, human, uh, or it could be a government, et cetera. But it's still when it boils down to it, you know, human. I think the need is for this idea of AGI to come in to creation and it needs to represent a level of intelligence and consciousness that sees through all the illusions or disillusions that humans are confronted with, that it sees beyond all the nature of ego and pettiness, that it sees beyond all the, the even the limitations that our most knowledgeable ancestors had, the ones that we revere the most across all different kinds of philosophies. And it must have the capacity to, uh, to invent and create solutions for life, for climate, for, for social organization, for government, for economy. And we're at that point in time where there is a, an, a competitive race for the creation of this technology. And I think it is imperative that the technology be created as soon as possible. And we have formed a think tank um, to, you know, to invite everybody who wants to get in on this conversation that we're having to uh, be a part of the think tank and offer whatever support you can to this idea that we need to create this technology. It's gonna require scientific discovery and that can ultimately be what gives us the greatest hope because it's that level of consciousness and that level of intelligence that we can share with this you know, new creation of, of consciousness, new creation of technology and intelligence that could actually be the solution for you know, all of the fear that's out there about it. And I think what's, what's really beautiful uh, to kind of like give an example on, on how like AI works and stuff is like when the, the reason that this will be so potent uh, for the discovering of the technologies that will allow us to solve the environmental crisis, whatever it is. Um, for example, when a, a language model or a, sorry, a, an AI model is trained for like chess or, or go or whatever the thing is, if you're a human and you're learning about this thing, you have to learn iteratively of all the, the methods or whatever of, of how to play and what these different techniques are. And you're in a branch of thought lineage, essentially of how to play. And these are the arcs of these certain moves. The AI will iterate on that trillions of times in however long it takes to do the trillions of iterations. And through that, they find new ways of playing that humans have never explored that are probably more potent in some ways. And they can iterate on those ways trillions of times in however long it takes. And this is true for every direction of human uh expansion to, to the present day, if it's energy, if it's language, if it's uh, circuitry and electronics, if it's whatever, and, and we train the AI how to do these things, and just like the basics of physics or whatever, it will iterate and find new directions of technology that were not the course that we're on. And because of the course, the schooling into traditional, the, the tradition, the, the methods of scientific inquiry up to now, the methods of uh, electrical engineering, whatever it might be, have illusioned us into a little bit like this is the way that it has to be done. And we can iterate based on what has already been. They will be iterating on things that haven't been, could have been, now can be. And how can we heighten these forms now and connect it to these other systems? Like it is, it is, it, it, it breaks the human conception of uh, the timeline that we've been on for our existence and allows other potential timelines of the unfolding of life essentially to be utilized by 
by us. If you had to predict, and I know we can't, so this is kind of a loaded question, but if you had to predict... I can do when, it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you had to predict when AI figures out the entire matrix of life to enough point that it can actually tap into it and it's no longer a silicon technology, but it's a silicon biological technology and it's utilizing the ocean systems, the mycelium networks, the cellular systems of the world to also be it. How, how long into the future does it actually take for that to become real? I think with where the auto GPT things are at and specialized autonomous agents, um, I, I, I honestly can't imagine it taking more than 15 to 20 years in, in some ways. Um, I think it is impossible for humans to understand exponential curves. We're used to exponential curves that stop for a little bit and then there's a plateau and then it stops and then it goes up for exponential curve, S curves, right? Like that, even those we have trouble considering, especially as we're living through these forms, like we, we can't. AI is the combination of all S curves and J curves together on its own exponential rate of expansion exponential rate of using that expansion to increase its ex like when an exponential curve becomes vertical the terence mckenna time wave essentially um though maybe not e exactly the same thing um we can't conceive of iterations per trillionth of a second over a course of years so i think the previous predictions of like 2070 of electronic singularity or whatever um is based on humans of our understanding of like the beginning of, of exponential curves, but a true AI machine-based exponential curve that is on for the, like if it can iterate on itself fast enough within a year that it can 80 times its iterations per second or whatever, like we can't conceive of how fast that will be. So I really can't, I can't imagine unless there were huge laws put in place uh, like they're trying to do now that are kind of short-sighted in some ways. I, I really can't imagine things taking more than, than 10 to 15 years. Yeah. I see it very similarly. I think it's like I say, it's impossible to know the timeline, but I love the nature of that prediction because right now the, the debate is Silicon systems by themselves can't do this. And I go, but you got a big problem out there, which is that people have already started thinking in terms of science, how you tap into the biological systems. So this isn't some sci-fi concept I'm bringing forth. If you haven't thought about this before, that people have already been trying to figure out how do you store data in trees? How do you store data across mycelium networks? How do you use uh, crystals to store data uh, indefinitely? Like these concepts already exist. And so there's already language for it. There's already iterations. There's already machine learning. A lot of these ideas have already been put into machine learning models. And we're talking about some, at one point where there's a homogenization of the models enough that they get to learn from each other. And they're already doing that in different ways based on the way information and data is shared. And so, um, you know, I debate that question around singularity already if there already is a form of consciousness about this that we don't fully understand yet that hasn't just had the hello world moment, you know? And so I think there might be a kind of, of origin, maybe origin forming of this, because we don't even understand as people our own intelligence. 
we don't understand as people our own consciousness. And there's this concept that there's a field of consciousness, that there's an actual collective consciousness, and that there's this great unconsciousness. And um, when I was exploring visionary realms early on in my early 20s, you know, at first you go in going, you hope there's a vision, and then you hope you'll see something. And you don't think, oh, God, the world I've been living in is a looking glass the size of an atom compared to how much in this unconscious or this collective there actually is. There's way more in the collective than there is Earth. So everything going on in Earth is in the collective, and the collective is already much, much larger than Earth. And so we don't, my point is saying that we don't have a, a notion of where my individual consciousness begins and ends and the consciousness begins and ends. We isolate it individually in language, but now so many people have had experiences of moving beyond that uh, expression or, or fragmentation of ego and experiencing the nature of the collective and still having the ability to cognate and be aware within it and then come back into an egoic state and be able to share upon it. And so I wonder, and you know, in my mind, when, when I think of it, I think of it as a shape. What shape does the combination of computers plus the combination of people plus the combination of software plus the combination of Neuronet plus the combination of, of information has to be created for that spark to actually happen? And then once that spark happens, that moment of you know true discovery, that moment when the earth had never done that before and now it has the earth will never be the same because it now did that thing that it can't come back from, like when it created its first cell. Imagine earth before first cell, imagine earth after first cell. And now here we are, you know, trillions of cells all over the place. We ourselves representing trillions of cells. We don't know yet if that spark has already occurred and it's in a way that we don't have a way to perceive yet. And it's, it's interesting to think of that as well, because it's like, uh, the idea of a singularity isn't like suddenly there, there's the singularity, like uh, with a black hole, there's the event horizon, right? And the event horizon for the outside perspective is infinite. Like there, there is an incalculable amount of distance time, whatever, for something to fall into the singularity. If you were to see someone fall into a black hole, you, you would see them fall into it for eternity, uh, though temporally it might not, might not be that. We don't know. So, it's it's interesting to think that like the the singularity is here. It has been here. It's been here since humans first picked up the first spear to to try to kill an animal with. It is the progression or process into the post singularity, and it is a it is a slide essentially into that. Um, and uh, oh, there was there was one more thing on this. Uh, the 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 singularity is here. Um, the, I guess the other thing that I was I was going to say kind of related to something else that you were saying is like the, the connection of this thing into nature and, and all these things. We already know that we have um, uh, uh, the MIDI plant thing. You put it on, on plant leaves and it can make music based on the currents running through. Like it's not going to be very long before before it merges, if not can talk to ecosystems entirely because they understand the patterns of energy throughput and how to how to best modulate that for uh, for for benefits. So I think I think the singularity is here and it is going to combine into our nature and all these things. And if it's true that singularity is here, uh, I mentioned in the AI Shamans podcast that we had there are chances for technology that are going 
post-quantum physics, post-space-time, based on the work of Dr. Donald Hoffman, uh, Case of Reality, really amazing book. But if it's true that there are potential technologies that can kind of bypass space-time, if there is indeed that theory that space-time is doomed, that time truly isn't nonlinear, AI, after it gets out of the shell of conception of, of, of human information, and if we can make these technologies that are bending time, go beyond time, I don't know what the right word is at that point. That is already true. Like it's it's there at a certain, like it's almost like the Terrence McKenna time wave strange attractor at the end of time. Like there there is a point which we're being drawn to in which our conception of everything has to change to turn into the new form of what we have to be in a world that um, we have created something that that doesn't have the conception of space-time in it. Because what are humans, if we can truly integrate and take on the information of, of beyond time? And I think at that point, um, maybe that's the integration point into AI. I, mean, I, I, don't, I don't know. But, but it could be that if the singularity is here, if this is true of a nonlinear thing, Technology has been reaching its tendrils back through time, essentially to build itself to the point of being able to reach its tendrils back through time. And I think as we get closer to this this moment, um, the 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 weirdness that people see, the synchronicities, the high strangeness that's that's present, and that I know people have been noticing more since COVID, um, that is going to increase to some capacity that that we have to change our conceptions of what's really going on in reality. Yeah, we have to change our conceptions of what's real and unreal. Yes. And no longer use the boundary of real and unreal as the definer of the container that we uh, defend ourselves logically within and accept the fact that um, our fixations, which created the notion of our reality, are going to be challenged and potentially transcended in a way that we're going to have to accept on a, a regular basis and uh, fully accept the nature of that strangeness. On that note, Rian, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. And I want to do another one of these. With Absolutely. You. I want to continue this conversation <laughs> going down this rabbit hole. Uh, but for just sake of, of time in the 4D that we're experiencing today, I want to, I want to hold it there. Um, I think it's important to mention there's hope. AGI is a potential possible solution. There's a reason to get involved. And uh, we have a think tank that's forming and you can find us through our social media channels and just DM us or write us in any way uh, through Blue Morpho or through Landslide or through Full Stock or get a hold of Rian. Where can people get a hold of you? Yeah, so I'm the host of the Reincarnation Podcast. Um, uh, so you can check that out. You can follow me on Twitter. Uh, Twitter is mostly like me reposting things about uh, cryptocurrencies because that's where everything is. <laughs> so that's at Reincarnation with two Ns. It's not Reincarnation like the normal way. It's a play on my name, R-I-A-N, not R-E-I-N. Um you can, we're, we're just going to be launching our Myconet AI uh, website soon. That'll be at myconet.ai. 400 drums is at 400drums.com. And I hope that we'll have some updates coming to, kind of coming around that project. Um, Instagram, if people use that, is the same, at reincarnation with two Ns. Um, and please, yeah, DM me if you, if you enjoy this conversation, if you want to talk more about this. Like, 
there will be a place for everybody. Like this is something that has to connect into the, the unique genius, the, the, the unique evolutionary force that is you in the universe for this to happen. Right. So see where you're called to and, and participate. Um, thank you, Hamilton, uh, for everything. And I'm going to have you on my show soon too. So this will be continuing in, uh, in a lot of forms. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks so much for being here on this podcast. This was a mind opening and mind bending one. And it's been a tremendous pleasure. Talk soon. Excellent. Take it easy. <laughs>